everyone, and welcome to episode 557 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? This week, we've been preparing for our next Focus On webinar for you guys, and this is awesome. It's on Thursday, 14th of September at 7 p.m. Sydney time, and it'll go for one and a half hours. That's an hour of the webinar and 30 minutes of Q&A for you guys. Of course, it's with the wonderful Pamela Freeman, and it's Focus On Style and Tone. So if you find it hard to describe or articulate what your writing style or tone is for your story, then maybe this is probably one that you want to have a look at. Focus on style and tone, it's, it's packed with information like all of our Focus on series and Pamela is going to deep dive into the elements of style and how it affects tone. Yes, they're two different things. So she's going to cover the most common mistakes new writers make. And of course, importantly, because we're all about being very practical with lots of practical advice here, she's going to show you how to fix them so that your style actually enhances your storytelling and your tone put your puts your readers in the right mindset to you know enjoy your story. So this webinar is ideal for you if you want a style that engages readers with your characters and of course encourages them to read on. So there's more to storytelling and more to writing than just the plot, right? Style and tone are equally important. It's also going to cover or help you if you want a tone that match that matches your subgenre and attracts readers of that subgenre. So there are certain subgenres that lend themselves to particular tones. So it's important for you to know that. It's also for people who want a, a way to ensure that style and tone work together to actually create the feel of the book. You know how sometimes you read books and there's the real tangible feeling there? Well, that's all due to style and tone. Anyway, it's also going to cover a whole lot more, but check out um, all of the information at writercenter.com.au slash style. That's writercenter.com.au slash style. And that's where you book in as well for Thursday, the 14th of September at 7pm Sydney, Melbourne time, writercenter.com.au slash style. Now let's move on to our writing tip this week. One thing I often see in stories by newer writers is that, well, you know, Nothing much actually happens in the story. It might be beautifully written, but not much happens. There's a difference between an anecdote or a scene and a story, an actual story. In a story, something changes. An anecdote might be amusing and you can tell someone about going down to the shops and running into an old school friend and then you both bought broccoli. (laughs) Okay, that's interesting, but it's not a story. As I said, in a story, something changes. Your character needs to change in some way, even if it's only small. Using the same example, you could change that anecdote into a story, let's say, by having your character, we'll call her Ruth, worried about aging, yeah, worried that her face has changed and thinking about taking her savings and getting plastic surgery. But then Ruth runs into that old school friend and sees how their face has changed too and they like it. Their school friend is comfortable and confident with aging and Ruth thinks, oh, maybe I could get used to it too. And then buys a very expensive broccoli (laughs) 
instead of running off to get plastic surgery. Okay. It's a small change, but it's a change, right? So remember, the difference between an anecdote and a story is that in a story, your character needs to change in some way. Now let's move on to our competition this week. Ooh, I have three copies of The Fraud by Zadie Smith. How cool is that? Based on real historical events, this week's giveaway will make you question who and what can be relied on. I have three copies of The Fraud by Zadie Smith to give away. Here is the blurb. It's 1873. Mrs. Eliza Touche is the Scottish housekeeper and cousin by marriage of a once famous novelist, now in decline, William Ainsworth, with whom she has lived for 30 years. Mrs. Touche is a woman of many interests, literature, justice, abolitionism, class, her cousin, his wives, this life and the next. But she is also sceptical. She suspects her cousin of having no talent, his successful friend, Mr. Charles Dickens, of being a bully and a moralist, and England of being a land of facades in which nothing is quite what it seems. Andrew Bogle, meanwhile, grew up enslaved on the Hope Plantation, Jamaica. He knows every lump of sugar comes at a human cost, that the rich deceive the poor, and that people are more easily manipulated than they realise. When Bogle finds himself in London, star witness in a celebrated case of imposture, he knows his future depends on telling the right story. The Tichborne trial captivates Mrs. Touche and all of England. Is Sir Roger Tichborne really who he says he is, or is he a fraud? Mrs. Touche is a woman of the world. Mr. Bogle is no fool. But in a world of hypocrisy and self-deception, deciding what is real proves a complicated task. Based on real historical events, The Fraud is a dazzling novel about truth and fiction, Jamaica and Britain, fraudulence and authenticity, and the mystery of other people. Wow. Okay. So go to writercentercomau slash win to win one of three copies of The Fraud by Zadie Smith. The entries close on the 11th of September. And uh, as I said, it's writerscentercomau slash win. And don't worry if you're listening to this episode in the future, just go to that URL anyway, because there'll be some other fantastic competition that I have for you that you can enter. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, the word of the week this week is Philip. That's F for Fred, F-I-L-L-I-P, Philip. What does it mean? Well, it's a verb and it means to strike with the nail of a finger snapped from the end of the thumb. So to kind of flick your finger off your thumb. And as a noun, it is a smart tap or stroke, usually meant as a kind of boost. An example sentence would be his declaration of love was a fillip to her heart. But I like the finger one, you know, to strike the nail. I'm I'm doing it. I'm not sure if you can hear it through the microphone. To strike the nail of a finger snapped from the end of the thumb. There you go. I didn't even know that that was a fillip. Now you can win at pub trivia. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history, or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. 
It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. That's writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Today I'm talking to Craig Semple, who was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force for 25 years, investigating homicides, outlaw motorcycle gangs, and hundreds of other serious crimes. Medically retired from law enforcement in 2013 due to psychological injuries, Craig is now a keynote speaker and mental health advocate. His memoir is The Cop Who Fell to Earth. Thanks so much for joining us today, Craig. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. Oh, congratulations, The Cop Who Fell to Earth. I devoured your story. Um, I have so many questions, but before we dive into them, can you tell us what your book is about? Yeah, it's basically a memoir of my, basically my life, but particularly my career in law enforcement over a 25 year period from basically the age of 18 all the way through to early forties. And, um, I sort of like to take the reader on a, on, on a bit of a journey, what it's, what it's like to be in the front seat of law enforcement, particularly from a perspective of a criminal investigator and I spent my whole career as a detective and so I wanted to give people a bit of a front row seat into what it's like to actually run investigations, deliver them, the impact of them on cops and on their families as well. Um, and then I guess from the other, the back end of it, it's a, it's a lot about um, self-discovery, self-discovery about mental health and and also recovery. So the, the, the last part of the book in particular, I, I hope to come across like a story of hope um, because there's a lot of people out there struggling at the moment. And, you know, one of the key ingredients of getting well is having that hope and belief. Now, on the cover of the book, Nick Caldas, who's the former, former Deputy Commissioner of the New South Wales Police Force, said, no one could remain unmoved by Craig Semple's brutal honesty. And I have to admit, before I started reading the book, I thought, what am I going to have in common <laughs> with a cop who's been a cop for all the, he lives a completely different world than, than I do. Um, you know, how, what am I going to, how am I going to connect with this guy? And what Nick Caldas wrote is absolutely correct. No one could remain unmoved by what you've written. So congratulations on doing a great job on conveying all of that. Um, but. You know, you had to go through a lot of stuff in life to get to where you are today. So can you just give us, before we get into the writing of the book, an idea of the kind of stuff that you went through? Look, it's one of those things. I I, I don't really know what I was signed up for, to be quite honest, when, when I first joined the police force. So I, I just knew I wanted to do something exciting and big in my life, but I, I, 
I don't know. It's one of those things where I could have been someone who joined the police force and just did what I had to do and just sort of got through and, and, you know, had a lot, nice long career, but it's sort of that, that personality trait doesn't really run in my family. You know, my brother, my mum, my sister, we're, we're all pretty driven people. And, um, and, and so look, every, everywhere I went that I, that was, that I worked as a there were so many things that sort of just piled up over different periods of time that sort of led me down different ways of, of, um, of the way I did my job. And I became quite, like I was so, um, dedicated to my work and I was so passionate about it. Um, that like everywhere I, everywhere I went, I, I really looked hard to find trouble everywhere, everywhere I, I was stationed, everywhere I transferred to. And, and when I wasn't looking for it, it was finding me anyway. So, um, so I don't know, it's one of those, uh, one of those things with, with the sort of work I was doing, which was a lot of, as you would read in the book, there's a lot of homicides I was exposed to over a period of time. Most of my career, uh, was in regional areas of New South Wales. So, um, the dynamics with regional police work in comparison to the city is your resources are really limited and helps a long way away in a lot of those occasions. So, um, so the sort of things I was, I was exposed to. Um, the pressure, the, the lack of resources all played a big role in it as well. But basically most of my career, I had a real passion for drug work and I had a passion for, um, particularly outlaw motorcycle gangs uh, over the last 10 years of my career and 10 years of my career. And that was as a result of a couple of run-ins I'd had with them over a period of time. And, and, uh, and also I had a real passion for homicide work because, uh, I, I guess I just, from my, from the time of my first homicide investigator, I was only 23 or 24 years of age. I really got an understanding of how important homicide work is insofar as, uh, we're the last line of defense for the remaining family of the victim. And, and so there's a lot of victim care and there's so much, uh, that needs to go into a homicide investigation. So all those things you know, had everything else thrown in as well. Over those 25 years, I, I had exposure to everything from armed robberies to uh, pedophiles and, and child abuse and all sorts of other stuff as well. But, um, but it was mainly the drug work and the homicides and the body gang stuff that consumed most of my career. And it's clear that you were really driven. And of course you recount a lot of the stories. So it does, it reads like it's a page turner, it reads like a, a thriller. Uh, but one thing, um, jumped out at me, which was you wrote, it was no wonder I couldn't sleep, but I never let fear of reprisal get in the way of doing my job. Because also when you live in a regional area, everyone knows where you live. <laughs> when there are very few cops in the area, they know who the cops are. So I'm curious to know, why were you never <laughs> scared of reprisal in any way? Look, there's probably two aspects to that answer. Number one, um, look, if, if I allowed fear of reprisal get in the way of doing my job, um, it would just basically make me null and void. You know, it would hamstring the work we were doing and, and it would mean that I'd probably back off from doing things that needed to be done. Um, so there was that, that side of it, but the other side of it was, um, you know, with all the mental health things I had going on in the background, um, particularly after, you know, the, the regards to the bikey gangs, there was, there was one incident that I talked about in the book where we were attacked off duty, um, by, by a bikey gang and reprisal for work we were doing. And I sort of, one of those things that I sort of moved on from there was I just continually need, felt like I needed to keep making myself tougher all the time. And, and so part of that was 
continually throwing myself into the riskiest situations I could possibly find. Um, just in that endeavor, I was always looking for a challenge or a showdown. So I guess that sort of was the second part of that answer. It's sort of, it's, it's really hard to describe, especially now that I've come through the other side of it. I look back and I barely recognize myself at the point where I was back there doing that sort of work. I was so reckless and I was taking so many risks. Um, but all that, all that recklessness and all that risk taking was really important in the work that I was doing and also led to the achievements that, and outcomes that we had over that period of time. And maybe I can count myself lucky that there was no reprisals, um, back then. Um, pretty lucky about that. Uh, and you're right, but they do know where you live. It's a totally different kettle of fish in the city. I could lock up a cot with bikies and, and go home. They didn't know where I lived, but, but now in the country areas, they always knew what car I drove what house I lived in. I had a president of a bikey gang living across the road from me at one point in one country town I, I worked at. So, um, so the dynamics are a lot different. It was more upfront and personal. Uh, and that's, I guess, what really tripped me when they crossed that line and, and, and attacked us in our personal lives, uh, off duty. That's probably why I was more, um, reacted more to it when they crossed that line. Cause I, I knew this, this is, this is serious. Like these guys. They know everything about us and here they've just crossed this line. What's the next thing they might do? I think it's important for listeners to also know that this isn't just a series of stories of, you know, high adrenaline-fueled drug busts and, and, and scenarios of dealing with criminals. Because you reach a point and you write about this because this is, you know, a key part of who you are now. You reach a point where stuff starts going wrong in your own mental, you know, and emotional life. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, look, I had, had been, uh, I had been dealing with some significant mental health problems for, for quite a while and at, at least the eight, last eight or nine years of my career, I was, I was quite unwell, uh, looking back in hindsight. So there's probably many times before that. I mean, my brother, he followed me into the police force too when he was a, he was a rookie cop. Two weeks later, he stabbed by a drug dealer, nearly died. Um, there were all these different things sort of added it, that, that incident was probably the catalyst or the first time I ever fell back on my work as a way to, to deal with emotional problems. Cause you know, I had a lot of anger back then towards what had happened to him and his, his offside, was murdered in the same incident and, and, um, and there was nothing I would do about that. So I used my work as a way to focus and, and redirect my anger into, you know, um, I can't do anything about what happened to him, but it's drug real dealing related. So I'm working at a drug squad. I can, I can target all drug dealers now. So it really motivated me to become almost a little bit obsessed in the work that I was doing. That sort of followed through the rest of my career as well. And it was about, um, eight years before I eventually had what I'd been called a breakdown, but which what I now call a breakthrough. Um, I had been dealing with nightmares and chronic sleep problems, you know, eight or nine years of living on two to five hours sleep a night. That's that's not sustainable. Yeah, you know, I would sit in traffic lights on my way to work and the sort of thoughts that were going through my head, um, I would, I would just sit there sometimes and think, I must be going crazy because normal people don't think the sorts of things that are going through your head right now. So, um, so there was a lot of stuff going on at home too. I was, uh, really withdrawn from my family and I couldn't tap into too many positive feelings, you know, like love. Um, so that was obviously having an impact on my marriage and. When I was falling back on the usual coping strategies of substance use, which was alcohol for me. Um, but I, I was just really manic in the way I was doing my work. My, 
one of my psychiatrists eventually described it as like having a manic defense as a way to try to deal with and, and, and suppress everything I was dealing over those as eight or nine years. But look, like everything goes up, it's got to come down. And uh, I talk about burnout a lot in a lot of the workshops I run these days and it's a real thing. And, um, and you know, the smart people, when they get to the edge of burnout, they, they sort of back off and, and, and go backwards and take care of themselves where I got to the edge and I just kept going. And, and from there, that big drop led to a whole world of problems for me for the next three years and, and basically destroyed my career and nearly took my life. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was a pretty, pretty significant chain of events that sort of went, I went in that pathway down that to where I ended up. Mm. When you finally decided to seek some help or talk to someone about it, because uh, I want to get to the, the part about writing, but before you even started writing this book, you actually started seeing your GP or your doctor. Sure. Um, and one of the things you did, I think on his advice, was just to start writing down some of the things that were going on in your life. What, what did you think first when he said, oh, why don't you start writing th- things down? And, and how did you feel when you did start writing things down? Well, so, so I don't think, so John and I, my doctor, he's, him and I are very good friends and, uh, he's kind enough to put a, a beautiful forward in the book as well. And, um, I don't think I've truly understood what he meant. Like I understood that from a work type of point of view and all the workers' conversation, they're really going to know the diagnosis and all that sort of thing, all the things I've been exposed to so they can really work it out. Now, in what I know now, it was probably just after like a dot point report about, okay, time and date, you went to this incident, bang, and next one. But what I actually did, I went home and I started writing about the first incident and I just found myself getting caught up in, in writing it in, in detail and really describing not only what I was exposed to, but how it felt, you know, all those sorts of things. And, and then I'd move on to the next one. And, um, and it took me several months to get it done. And by the time I finished, I had 60 pages of all this, all the horrors that I could remember, right? And, and that's just the ones I could remember. Um, and I took it into him. <laughs> he got a bit of a shock. I walked in there and he said, mate, oh, okay, this is going to take me a little while. But after he read it, and this is, yeah, a couple of weeks later on an appointment, he said, mate, you can really write. You know, you can really write. And I said, well, I'm glad you said that because, uh, you know, that's the 60 pages of all the all the bad stuff. There were so many great parts of my career that I'm 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 so proud of my achievements and, and I love the camaraderie and all the stories. I'm going to go back and start it all over again and uh, and include everything. And, and back then, the mate... I guess the main reason and motivation for it was my, my family had paid a pretty high price for, for my career over that, those years. And I really wanted to package it up in a way that my three sons in particular could look back and understand that sacrifice and, and know what happened and what their dad did and, and, and hopefully be proud of me for, for what I did. And the more that I did, the more, the more that I wrote, um, I found it, I always enjoyed writing. Like I've always enjoyed it when in the, professional part of my, my career as a, as a detective, I had to write really long statements of facts for court, you know, and, and that's basically putting stories together for, for court cases. And some of those are huge documents and affidavits for listing devices and telephone intercepts. So all those things required getting information and putting it into a, into a really, um, easy to read narrative. And I always enjoyed doing that. And I was a big reader. I loved it love reading since I was a little kid, mate, mum introduced me to it and, and really encouraged that all the way through my life. But, um, but just sitting down and writing about all these, these incidents, it was, 
not only did I enjoy the create creativity involved in it, um, but I, I also, in, I think I benefited from just processing things. You know, it was really cathartic. It was, it was just sitting down for the first time and rather running from all the things that I, that I'd sort of suppressed over the, over all these years, it was sitting down and methodically unpacking it like in detail, uh, in written words. And that was such a huge part of my healing process doing that. And it took many years to get, get through to the, to the end of that. But, um, but that was the catalyst for the whole thing. And then I guess John, my doctor, he, he was very encouraging because every time I'd go for an appointment, he'd say, mate, have you got another chapter for me? Have you got another chapter? And I'd think, oh, that's pretty cool. He obviously thinks I can write. So I, that, that would motivate me to keep going with it as well. So, um, but I, I never could have believed that it is where it is now. Um, yeah, going back all those years ago. But the difference between writing in for David or a court document is that they are the facts, which is fine, but you don't put your feelings into those things. So what you did, I assume, was different. How did it feel? I mean, number one, did you put your feelings into what you were writing? And number two, how did that feel then? To to because it was a different kind of writing. Well, the, the whole the whole journey for the last ten years has been that my um, my writing has developed so much. I, if I go back and look at my very first draft, you know, from when I walked out of that doctor surgery and got started, yeah, my language my mood, the tone, everything, I can see it all in the way that I was writing. There was still a lot of anger there. There was still a lot of judgment on people that, you know, maybe I could have, you know, had now got much of a better appreciative um, attitude towards. And um, so I guess when it started, bang, really angry, still unwell. And then as I sort of moved forward, the, the longer I did it and, the, and as I went through various stages of treatment, my, my language changed, my tone changed. Everything changed, and and then it was a matter of going back and going. But when I finished it, I need to start this all over again now, and and rewrite it because the way I am now is so much better than the way I was back then. So it was a real learning process doing the whole thing. But um, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. There's another part of um, the process where you talk about uh, one of the therapists I think that you work with or a counselor called Annette who introduced you to a mindfulness technique called five senses practice. And it's essentially where you would write about, you know, what's going on around you in a real sensory experience, things you could see, things you could hear, things you could feel, and so on. Can you describe to us what that process was in your words and what you would write about in what situations and why was that so beneficial? It was, uh, so so early in my treatment, and it introduced me to that um, to that meditation. And and look, I'll, with meditation, you've got to find a practice that really suits you, and, and something that you, it's a good fit. And that was a real good fit for me because, as a detective, yeah, my my five senses, actually six senses, including instinct, were so important to the way I did my job. Yeah, you know, the things you can see here, smell, taste, everything. Um, so that five sense practice really worked well for me. And so I, that was my main go-to over the, over the three years I was really unwell. And, and after I hit that real big low point in, in my life where I decided, no, nah, I've got to get my, I've got to turn this around and get my life back. I came up with a game plan and I came up with all these wellbeing strategies I've been taught. One of them was mindfulness. And, and for each of these strategies, I came up with one simple action, how I was going to put that strategy into my life moving forward from that day. Now, with that five sense practice that Annette had taught me, 
usually that, that process would take maybe 10 or 15 minutes in just sitting there and doing it. But I thought to myself, I could really get more benefit out of this. I love my writing. If I go and actually write short descriptive stories about the things I can see, hear and feel in the world around me. So I just started going up in the rainforest. I'd take my, a backpack with my laptop and I'd go on a bush walk and sit somewhere where, and where I felt inspired and just sit there and really take notice of the world around me, like really zero in on certain aspects of things I could see, even if it was just a tree fern in front of me and really getting into the detail and describing it in, in words. And then the birds and things I could hear and, and even the temperature and, and, and the breeze and anything that was going on sensory around me, I would write it. But I'd write it in a way that was like painting a picture with words. And, and so I called it word art eventually. But I, I just had so much benefit from that because it really, it really extended the time that I was involved in this mindfulness practice. I could get lost for two or three hours easily doing this sort of work. And, uh, and while I was doing that, I wasn't thinking about all the horrible stuff that happened in my life. And meditation is an absolutely awesome way to rewire yourself from trauma. And, and so I was benefiting from that, but without even realizing it, I was really developing my, my writing skills as well from being able to tap into all those things and, and not only just tap into them, but, but to describe them and put them in words. Um, and I think, you know, when I went back and did, you know, the following drafts in the book, that, that I think it shines through a bit in, especially some of the ways that I've, I've described some of the things that I was exposed to and some of the amazing things that happened. Um, so look, I, I do, I do thank Annette so much for introducing me to that mindfulness practice. Um, and I'm so glad I, I took the time to, to do that. And it's one of the things like, even though, um, back then I was doing it for basically for therapy, some of those things have then become, I think I've shared one or two, uh, examples of it in my book, what I did, uh, with those, that word art. So nothing you ever write ever goes to waste. You know, I've had that folder there and I'm like, pick one out and I said, well, I'm going to put that in my book. Yes, especially the bits in italics, right? I mean, I think that they are yeah. definitely from those sessions. Now, yes. you start off um, just writing because your GP kind of <laughs> said, your doctor said, hey, can you write some of the incidences down? And it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And it was something you enjoyed, but something that was, as you say, cathartic. At what point did you think, I'm going to make this into a book. Like what, what was the decision to, to want to publish a book? I almost wrote it like a book because that's how I enjoyed the writing of it. It was, um, and, and like I said, that first draft is totally different than what we've got now. It's, um, but, um, I think it was a lot of encouragement there. I, I thought I had a story to tell. I thought a lot of my stories, uh, are really important in saying that it's, they're, they're the stories of hundreds of cops out there are dealing with every day and. And, and my stories are no more important than theirs are. I just have an ability to put mine into words. And so I feel like I'm sort of speaking for them by sharing my story as well, which is really important to me. But I guess, um, at the end of it, I thought it had actually had some legs and, and so did my doctor and, and my mom who read it as well. And so what I did, I just said to sound it out, I, I looked up, actually I was referred to up in Byron Bay, some professional, um, Oh, I don't even know what she, uh, they call them, but, but they're basically editors, people that they, they're professionals in this field and they do re book reviews and stuff like on your manuscript. So I invested, um, yeah, and, and I never look at things like that as a cost. It was an investment and I spent some money, had them have a look at it and they sent it back with some real encouragement, but with some real critical advice about 
what needed to happen with it. Okay. It was too big. Um, you know, there was, uh, there, there was penal through it. Okay. So that was, uh, I think it was the encouragement that I got from them. This is really, this has got a lot of potential, but there's so much work you got to do. And look, I basically, I thought I'll definitely get to this one day, but then I, I started a business and things went crazy and I never got time to, to get back to it. It was probably one of those things where it never would have happened. Like I'm just so busy with my work, um, that it wasn't until COVID shut my business down, finally had some time to do it. So I took that opportunity and, and when I went and did the, the, the final, it was, it was the second last draft. Um, it was, I, my mindset on it was totally different. I was fully dedicated to it. I really did write it like a, like a novel, but I, I do it. I've written it that way because I want it to come across as action packed and as fast paced as what living it was. Okay. So it's, I really want to give people a sense of the ride and, and the adrenaline and, and the challenge that, that I was experiencing. So, um, so, so then when, when I sent it back to them, after I finished that, that draft, I sent it back to the same reviewers, our Madeline Oliver, Oliver and, and Laurel Cohen up there at, um, at Byron Bay. And, and that report they sent back was basically, this is ready to go. Like there was no pen through it. It was just, mate, you've done such a great job. Excellent. Off it goes. So that's what happened. So then how did you talk to, talk to us about your journey to publication? Like, you know, how did you get your publisher and so on? It's uh, like probably a lot of people listening to this will be nodding their heads when I say it was a real hard job. It was really hard, but one of those things that I think if you, if you don't have true belief in yourself, it would be easy to give up and, and just, and, and after the first couple of times you send your manuscript away and you either don't hear anything or you say, they you know, get a non-interested or whatever. Um, you know, I just, I just hunted down as every single publisher that I could find on the internet through contacts, through, through the, um, through Laurel Cohen and, and, and her crew and everyone, literary agents, and I just kept banging it out there. I sent it out to so many people. I've got no idea how many, and I sort of got the feeling after a while that are they really looking at it? Are they really because they get hammered with so many uh, manuscripts? I think there's probably so many that sort of slip through because they've just like got so many to deal with. Um, but I was so lucky. I, I, I do a lot of public speaking at conferences and, and things like that. And there was one place I went to. Um, where someone asked me a question at the end of the, the talk and I mentioned that, oh, yeah, I have written a book, but if anyone knows the publisher, sing out because I'm able to it. So one woman came up to me, a director of, of the organization came up and said, I actually know a publisher that they mainly do business uh, books. So it's not, not the type of book you've done, but I'll put you in touch. So anyway, long story short, I sent it off to her. She said, it's not our, our go, but you know, you might want to try Echo Publishing. Um, and I'd never heard of it. That, that hadn't come up on, on my radar at all. And I thought, okay. So I didn't do any of the usual stuff with pitches or, or all the other things that we normally do. I just sent my basic email. It was just an email with my synopsis and an introduction, first chapter, bit about my bio in the email. And I thought it was hit and hope. And, you know, one thing about Echo, I was so, I'm so happy that that had all those knockbacks or, or didn't have that success or everyone else because it's found its rightful home with Echo. It's a, I really feel like it's, it's family there. And, um, and that's a really good fit for me. Like that personal care, um, is such a big thing, but Juliet is the managing director there. She, she read it and, um, and she straight away just reached out and said, mate, 
we need to talk. This is, this is going somewhere. Um, and so there it went and I'm so happy we signed up. So you not only, in the book, you not only have the arc of your career, it's the arc of what is going on with you internally. And you are very vulnerable in the book. You talk about very, very personal things that are going on in your personal life, in your, uh, in your brain, you know, in, 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 in your mental um, health, with your mental health. What, what was that like putting all of that on paper? Because, you know, until your breakthrough, you're this tough guy who didn't really have any cracks. So what was that like actually seeing that on paper and allowing yourself to write all of that, which is very confronting, I imagine. Yeah, it's massively confronting. But I, I, I guess I'll, I'll take it back one step. When I had my breakdown, which is what I call it back then, um, you know, the tough guy stuff, that was all armor that I built around myself to protect myself. And, and when, when I had, had my breakdown and I was really depressed and everything, that armor fell away and I sort of was back to me again to some degree. And, um, and I didn't, there was a lot of parts of me that I, I looked back on and I wasn't real happy with, um, you know, I'd, I'd built a big ego and, and, and some of my behaviors over the years were less than ideal. I wasn't proud of myself, but you got to confront those things. And, and, and the other thing with, with writing, in my experience, just writing my memoir is like, I've written a lot of stories about other people and their bad behaviors, mainly criminally, um, with, with a lot of the jobs that I, I talked about, but. I think it would be, it would have, I think it was really important for me also to be honest about my own failings in, in through, through my life as well. It's a bit, bit, bit rich to be able to, you know, criticizing or, or writing up about the bad behavior of others if you can't be open and honest about your own as well. And to do that was really confronting. Um, it's like, I've been honest with my family about, yeah, uh, some of the things I've done in my life, but. To put it out there, put it on paper, it was really challenging, but you sort of, I think I just got myself in the mindset, mate, just do it. Just throw yourself in there. And put, you know, people either understand it or they won't. It's, it's nothing you can do to control that, but you really need to be vulnerable and allow this to happen. And I think, um, I think one of the things that made me much feel much safer about that was Juliet and the team at Echo, because they, they really taught me through a lot of the things that I was worried about and made me feel safe in the telling of those stories. And, and that was a really important thing for me, but actually writing it down was one thing, but like you said, once I, once I actually signed the dotted line with the publishing deal, like that to me was the ultimate achievement, it, having your work published or, or signing up a contract with it, it's like a validation that you can write. And, and so that was, that was the first achievement. But then I thought back and I thought, holy hell. Every time I go and do a lived experience talk at a conference, or what, oh, that's a controlled environment. This is going out on a much larger scale and I have no control over it once it goes out there. It's, it's there. So um, it was really confronting. I mean, my partner, I don't know how many times we've had this discussion where I've been really, um, I don't know, probably almost a little bit scared about how it's going to get taken and, and you know, how people are going to absorb it and react to it. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, it is my life and it's basically all the warts and all, basically, pretty much. And, um, and I think once people see the whole story, like it, my, my focus may have been a little bit too much on those warts, but when people see the whole story, I think most people are going to understand. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's very honest. It's very raw, but it's very helpful. I, I think as well. 
But I'm going to come back, circle back a bit, Craig, because writing about, um, you know, bad behavior is, or, or perceived bad behavior is one thing, but writing about raw emotion, the depths of your lows is, is very different. So can you talk to me about when you wrote about those points, you know, the number of times that you were in tears, the number of times that the things that went through your head, the, the, the real low points. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, what, I think that was a good thing about getting a start on it as early as I did. Cause a lot of, a lot of the things that I wrote about, um, particularly about, you know, the way I felt with depression and, and my, my experience of anxiety with PTSD were, were written down while it's still really fresh, while it's in some cases in right in the middle of it still. And, um, you know, I'd have, if I had an episode, um, if I had an episode where I, uh, I'd just go straight away and, and write about it immediately. So that was really important to have, have that. It's almost contemporaneous. Um, so that was important, but I, I don't know. It's one of those things where I really wanted to create a bit of understanding out there for everyone else create that empathy. This is what it's actually like to live with depression. Or this is the sort of feelings I was experiencing. These are the sort of impacts my family were experiencing because, uh, unless you lived it, it's really, really hard to get a bit of a handle. Um, and so there's a lot of people out there battling mental health problems and, and sometimes the people around them may not be as supportive as they, they probably could because they, they don't have that empathy and understanding. So, um, so I, I, I really hope that the depth in which I've written about the, the experiences I was having um, might cut through there and help a lot of people and have also help other families to understand what, what their loved ones are going through. Was that a difficult experience? Absolutely. It's even difficult to read back over it. I mean, once I had the printed copy of the book, um, yeah, I don't know how many I've wrote it and I've written it many times. And so, it, But I still read it again um, because reading it in pages on the – in my head, in a, in a printed uh, version, I really wanted to process that this is exactly what's happened. And, and even reading over it was quite emotional. Uh, there's many parts of the book that, you know, I'd tear up when I was reading it because it was sort of reliving it um, again. But I'm also, I'm also sort of, I, sometimes I was, I was quite emotional. So I'm really proud about the way that, that I've been able to put it into words. Um, so that's, that's a big thing too. And Oh, there's a lot of people I've lost in my life and, and reading over those times and those people that was, um, but it's just, I don't know. It's, I, I really hope that I've sort of done justice to all those experiences and, 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 and particularly in, in helping other people with, with what they're going through as well. As you say, there are a lot of other cops, a lot of other people who have their own stories as well. Um, fortunately you have this ability to write, which is great. And it's something that, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It's something that you developed over some time. Um, but that works for these other people. You, you I mean, because you found it beneficial and therapeutic and you said cathartic, what's your advice to other people who maybe have had a similar, have gone through similar experiences to you on whether putting it on paper is a useful thing. Look, a, a lot of um, a lot of psychologists actually recommend it um, to, to go and to write write down what what you experience because it's really the way to process things. So it's actually common practice uh, for therapy. Um, in in doing so, though, uh, I think you you really need to be careful. Like if you get to start prizing doors open and going places where you previously not wanted to go, you want to make sure you have got some good support around you. Um, 
So particularly counselors and professionals, but even your family and friends, uh, knowing what you're doing as well. And also with that too, like one of the things I was really careful about was making sure that I looked after my own self-care and that involves self-awareness. And, and when I was still unwell in writing, um, I, I always, I never went near it if I, if I wasn't doing okay. Okay. Because I, I didn't want to push myself into any sort of relapses and make things worse. So I always backed off in, in, during those times that I only went to it when I was feeling reasonably robust and, and, and in a good state of mind. Because the other side too, if you, if you write and you're not in the right frame of mind, it sort of comes through in the words you write and the language you use and the tone you have. So, um, so that was important to me, but the self-care side of it was so important as well. Even some of the places I would take myself, um, you know, away from home, just to number one, put myself in a position where uh, I had no distractions. I could dedicate full time to writing, but also a lot of those places I'd pick because they would inspire some creativity because they're all, you know, nice settings and nature and all those sorts of things. But they also gave me an opportunity that when I stopped for the day or stopped for lunch or whatever, I had beautiful places around me that I could just get out there and go for a walk, um, go for swimming, go for a surf, go fishing, whatever, just to, um, just to, to look after myself and in, in, in that, in that process. So I'm a big fan of it. Um, and I know a lot of psychologists are a big fan of writing down your experiences process. Definitely worked for me. Just got to know, um, get advice about it. Make sure you've got support around you and look after yourself. We mentioned the bits in italics, which um, uh, kind of have a more lyrical, literary feel to them. And a thought crossed my mind, Craig, as I was reading them was, I wonder if his next book is going to be fiction. Have you given some thought to that at all? Look, I have, and I, look, I'm, I'm known by publishers that the, um, they're, they're pretty keen for me to explore that at some point. Um, one of those things, I've always been a big, a big fan of Crawl Before You Walk. And, um, and so look, look I, I, I dabbled in it a little bit just to see whether I, I've got something there and just written a couple of little examples of, um, of, of, of different scenes and stories. And I don't know, I think I've got uh, potential there and, and, and I'm sort of, I will, well, I'm just going to process this one first, but I think it's definitely an, an, an option for me. And it's not just my own experience. I can draw back on, on that either with, with those sort of uh, books. It's not just a personal experience and professional, um, but also the people I've tapped into that are still out there doing that sort of work. I, I think it's got potential. Um, so who knows, who knows where this is all going to go. I mean, my next, my next, uh, work is, which I've started on now is, um, is a resource for families and people going through mental health problems, just, uh, from a lived experience point of view, um, without all the clinical, uh, stuff in the side, it's just, it's going to be a resource to give some tips about mental health supporting people, um, and also recovery, which is, I think is a really important thing. So, um, gives them tips about setting up game plan. So that's the next book. So after that, when that gets out, uh, which will be next year, we'll see where it goes, Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just give people some context because you work as a mental health advocate and you also do workshops and presentations with companies. Can you just give us a little bit of a snapshot into what your, you know, what you do these days? Yeah, so I get out a lot of, uh, I've got my own business delivering mental health training uh, in workplaces. So uh, I teach mental health first aid courses. I've got um, I've prepared transition programs that uh, the police force and, and the work cover insurer EML are, are, are funding for me to go and 
when, when police are leaving the police force, most of psychological injuries, I run a program to help them set up game plans for, you know, just planning life outside the cops and getting a better sense of control over their, their future rather than feeling like victims in the whole process. Um, so we've got those, um, I do a lot of work with the Black Dog Institute still. Um, so they're a world leader in research and I've, I've had a relationship with them, which I'm so happy to share in the book. Um, and I'm looking at, I do a lot of corporate partnership work with them and, and I'm an ambassador for Black Dog and there's some other work with, um, Quest for Life, who, who is an organization that we're, we're doing a donation from the sale of the book for that there is such an awesome organization looking after people who have suffered trauma in their life. Not just law enforcement and military, but you know, rape victims, child abuse victims, everyone. Uh, and they do five day programs down there and they're so awesome. Uh, so we're really um, doing a lot of support work with them as well. So I've got a busy, busy schedule. Like it's, um, it's good, straight work. I, I find it very rewarding and it's so healing in itself in, in being able to give back to, you know, for, for everything that's happened to me. I didn't get well just on my own. I had a lot of support. A lot of help from a lot of people. It's nice to be able to give back on that. So yeah, it's a pretty fulfilling life, and um, and sort of got the good new identity out of the whole thing. Too. It was one of the yeah. hardest things about leaving law enforcement was losing that identity as a detective. Well, one of the best ways to get over the grief of a lost identity is to build a new one, and, and I've sort of done that through this sort of work too. So pretty exciting, and um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm sort of getting to the point now. I don't try to plan my life too much because. We told I do. I guess he has off in a different direction, but it's all good fun. Uh, before we wrap up, what were your what are your top three tips for people who um, would like to write a book of similar to what you've just done, um, a memoir one day? A memoir, I would say, um, have a plan. Have a plan for what your books, what you're going to cover, what especially your key messages. If you, if you've got some key messages you want people to learn from is to have an idea and sort of direct your book down that, that path as well. Make sure you've got the stories that sort of feed into to that, that message, uh, which is, which is important. Um, look, I've already, I've already t- talked about self-care, probably dedication, time, dedication to writing. So every time I try to do a little bit here, a little bit there, it sort of did work for me. It was, it was about dedicating time to it and really getting into the zone. And, and then once you're on a roll, yeah, everything sort of falls into place. So I think dedicating time was very important. And I think um, one of the other things I reckon is very important is also to um, that vulnerability that we talked about before and, and, and honesty. If you're going to write a memoir, I think it's so important, um, especially if it's a memoir that is emotive and your readers are going to, you're going to, they're going to care for you. They get to find themselves caring for you. It's really important that that they know basically the, the full picture as well. Um, so I don't know, I guess they're, they're three of the biggest tips. When you say full picture, you mean what, the good what and would, the bad. Write it down, what's and all. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you got to, it's, I can't give that advice to everybody, but that's my experience. I think it's really important. Um, so, and, and look, it's all, I think it all, it all starts to feed back to the, the reader caring side of things as well. It's, um, I think if you're, if you're honest, people, I don't know, I'm not easy, probably more readable, but I think, um, it's, there's, there's more, uh, it's more genuine as well. And I, I think, uh, I, I really want readers in my book to just, just feel me. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, they absolutely do. Congratulations on the cop who fell to earth. Um, such a great message and such a riveting story. Thanks so much for your time today, Craig. Thank you, Valerie. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Craig. Now, before I leave you, I have a fun fact for you. The paper size known as Fullscap, which as many of you will know is slightly bigger than A4, is named after a watermark that used to be on the paper. Fullscap is usually around 8 by 13 inches and from around the 15th century, paper of that size had a watermark of a fool's cap as in F-O-O-L, yep, a fool, just the way it's spelled, a fool's cap and bells. Although nobody seems to quite know why, but that's where the word fool's cap is from. There you go. All right, thanks for joining me this week. I really appreciate it. Please do connect with me and the rest of the listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. Love to have you in in there. Uh, And of course, feel free to connect with me directly on social media. I'm on, um, I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram, and you'll find my other life as a visual artist on ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.